um, it's the the same it's the same book that I brought up a couple times, and then I'll mm-hmm. I'll mention this point, and then I'll get back to the impressions. Um, <laughs> um, Great, it's gonna be, we're gonna be yeah. uh, we're gonna be at the laugh factory. <laughs> Yes, I wept. I wept at the complete lack of care for the human beings that are impacted by these decisions. I wept at an institution choosing to choosing a path of maximum volatility and minimum consideration for its own political convenience. And I wept at the complete lack of regard I often feel our party has to its most vulnerable and endangered members and communities. Because the death threats and dangerous vitriol we'd inevitably receive by rushing such a sensitive, charged, and under-considered vote weren't worth delaying it for even a few hours to help us do the work necessary to open a conversation of understanding. It certainly wasn't the first time people's well-being were tossed aside for political convenience, and sadly I do not believe it will be the last. To those I have disappointed, I am deeply sorry. To those who believe this reasoning is insufficient or cowardice, I understand. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Mars on Life. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was Carl Sagan, right? No, actually. No, no, no. Carl Sagan would have been more like, Will uh, AOC made a lot of bad decision making uh, with regards to her cosmic understanding of the Iron Dome? Uh, no, this was uh, I I, uh, I was inspired by um, Will Menneker recently, who uh, when AOC made her Iron Dome present mm-hmm. vote and she wept, um, he made the comment of. What are you, fucking Jordan Peterson? Iron so, Dome. That just that just sounds like a sex tape if I've ever heard one. It sounds. It, wasn't that the uh, wasn't that the movie that that uh, Jeff Lebowski saw on in a what was that that porn star's name? A uh, Johnny um, Treehorn or whatever the fuck. Oh my god! I you remember right? You remember? You've seen. I do. I, I I just yeah. rewatched Big Lebowski recently and I realized I think I enjoy it now more than i ever have iron uh, dome uh well that that brightened my day that definitely did uh <laughs> so last time if memory mm-hmm. serves me right and it's been a long week so you got to kind of forgive me but last oh. time we delved into the only thing I can remember is that we delved into uh, certain uh, impressions of political yes. figures. I think yeah. we, we tackled like either Jordan Peterson or like Ben Shapiro. And then you, I don't know, I think Seinfeld was brought up. <laughs> you're going to have to keep me up to speed on what's happening. So, so throughout, throughout last week's show, um, I was doing my Ronald Reagan. Uh, right. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Who I, I gotta say, I you know I I think it was after that I wa I I finished Reagan Land, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and let me tell you, you know, you know, things are going bad when on the last page, you know, you're it's it's been more than 900 pages. And on the last page of the book and mind you, this is like kind of a compressed uh, wrap up of the book of the end of the book, because it ends in 1980. Right. The Republicans regain the Senate after several decades. Uh, fast forward a little bit. John Lennon is killed in New York City. And then fast forward a little bit more, and it's kind of touching just the beginning of 1981. Ronald Reagan is sworn in as the 40th president of the United States. And um, uh, please, people, read Reagan Land by Rick Perlstein. Arguably, that's more important, I think, than any of the other books in the the series that he wrote. He's written four tomes about sort of the rise of modern conservatism in America. Um, And I'm, I'm just... I'm 60s slash Nixon fatigued after the last five years of people bringing up Nixon in in relation to Donald Trump. So I I might actually skip his other books for the time being. Um, You skipping out reading? Well, it's. Well, you know. Yeah, it's. (laughs) There's some things that, that weigh on you when you read history and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, this is I love history, but this is absolutely depressing um which is ironic because i'm reading something that's equally depressing and it's american history really compressed but i would almost i would argue at this point it might be the best history book i've ever read which i'm not one for hyperbole or exaggeration um right because we live in such exaggerated times but uh it's greg grandin's recent book which apparently won the Pulitzer Prize, and I say apparently, and yet I can see the label that says it on the book cover in front of me, um, called The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. And it's not a long read, you know, it, it he does kind of go through American history chapter by chapter, and in a lot of ways, president by president, although he totally kind of jumps over Lincoln in the Civil War, or at least yeah, he pretty much jumps over Lincoln, which obviously kind of makes sense because Lincoln wasn't really much of an expansionist president. Mm-hmm. Unlike all of his like all of his predecessors were, he really was like the first not really expansionist president outside of like expanding presidential power. Um, and obviously that's because his his sole policy for most of the war outside of what later became the policies for abolition of slaver of slavery was basically the fact that he was a wartime president 24-7. But but another part of the reason why I I picked this up was because I thought about our conversation we had a while back um, talking about, like, you know, solving politics and and why things don't get resolved. And so, therefore, you know, like, what's causing it? And Grandin relies partially on... Uh, a quote from Martin Luther King um, talking a little bit about how, you know, there was so much focus on the Vietnam War that tackling an issue as critical as civil rights was almost put on the back burner by a lot of politicians in the late 1960s. And I'll just kind of read just kind of a quick line in here that Grandin kind of summarizes King's point is as simple as it is profound. 
A constant fleeing forward allowed the United States to avoid a true reckoning with its social problems, such as economic inequality, racism, crime and punishment, and violence. Other critics at the time were coming to similar conclusions. Some scholars argued that imperial expansion let the United States, quote, buy off its domestic white skilled working class, either through social welfare or higher wages made possible by third world exploitation. Others stressed the political benefits of expansion, which allowed the reconciliation of competing interests. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm less than halfway through. And at some point he talks a little bit about how there was this mentality of a safety valve, which apparently was everywhere in the ante, uh, antebellum America about how, you, you know, as I, I think the, the um, there was an award ceremony in, in early 2020 that kind of touched on this about uh, white male rage with regards to movies like Joker, The Irishman, uh, <laughs> Marriage Story. And it's kind of like that where you basically have all these people on the East Coast that are piling up on each other and you know wages are going stagnant the cost for rent is going up uh the cost of just general goods like you know clothing food what have you like it's all prices are going up and so the big escape for a lot of those people that would have probably you know you probably would have had an american revolution very much unlike the first one um, and more like more akin to like a Russian or Mexican style revolution. Um, but there was an, an excuse. There was a, a safety valve, which is, hey, instead of, uh, you know, going communist on everybody, go west, go, uh, go, go kill, go kill some indigenous people and take some land. And look, you can be prosperous and, you know not hurt your 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 fellow white brethren mm-hmm. um and it, yeah i mean so far it's it's a phenomenal read and the way he kind of compartmentalizes everything is very fluid and impactful um so the end of the myth by greg grandin highly recommend it even though i'm not even halfway through um but anyway back to what i was originally saying with impressions uh we ended the show off then with jordan peterson and slavoj zizek um <laughs> good i stuff. remember that right yeah <laughs> uh that was that was good stuff and you know i i like i said i brought up the i brought up peterson once again just because of the the parallel with the iron dome votes which to go back to a, another previous episode i will say and i'll be brief on this just because i don't want to make it a whole long big thing like we did with the whole tax the rich dress oh yeah that yeah Uh, i kind of spent the uh, the majority of my energy defending not defending but more so arguing the stupidity of it to to last me a couple of episodes so see i gotta get my step back (laughs) i've I've come around to realizing it is part of a, a bigger stupid picture Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, uh, some, some commentary discourse, if you will, on online with regards to this present vote, um, has basically been, oh, 
you know, there, there's there's bigger and real bigger and more real issues we can argue about. And this vote totally squashes the whole tax the rich dress. I'm actually going to go against the grain on that one and basically say, no, this is bad on its face and stupid, but it also has the same point, which is, you know, the crying and the dress wearing, it's about politics at the end of the day. Right. You know, it's not about doing a good thing. It's not about X, Y, or Z. It's just simply to sure. gen up people. Disingenuous. Yeah. 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 And so I, I can safely say I'm I'm very displeased and very, I think, all across the board, it's bad. So, uh, you know, I, I, I won't say I'm, I'm completely out of... Uh, uh, she she's got a lot of reflection she needs to do i'll put it that way and obviously i made the comment before that you know who the hell am i you know i'm not the one in congress oh, right well, but then again it's like you know mm-hmm. i guess by contrast the people in congress it's like well you could say who the hell are they but you'd be chastised for saying that because it's like well don't you know who they are and it's like of course we know yeah. who they are but it's like now they're using their platform for something, you know, preachy and proselytizing. So, yeah, are they really using their platform to the fullest extent? And that was sort of my point where it's like you have this. You have this giant network. People know who you are. And it's sort of the the issue I have with with I with. Idolizing celebrities mm-hmm. or famous individuals like in a in sort of this celebrity fashion like they're not celebrities they're just household names that people want to you know proclaim that they're so great because they have all this 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 big of a following whether it be in politics or entertainment or whatnot i think with this in particular you know i i because i made the comment again about you know oh well you know i i can stand on my own personal soapbox and you know have have my own views on things like for example what does the term progressive mean Mm -hmm. and you know i i can make a decision not only objectively but also as a matter of principle this is one of those examples of you know you 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 ride in into congress Assuring people that you're going to be voting from a matter of principle, mm-hmm. and then you don't. And then you don't. And I think that's where I, I do draw the line, where it's like, yeah, you are a congressperson, but you have touted yourself out as holier than thou in a way that, frankly, and I shouldn't put it in that regard. I, I put it in that regard in hindsight. Put it to the forefront. You know, it's respectful. If you're going to do something as a matter of principle, fine. Right. I also but understand when, a losing battle, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Bernie's had to do that plenty of times. Don't get me wrong. Right. Um, but this is one of those examples of, yeah, it was going to pass no matter what. Yeah, your colleagues voted no. But where's the principle in voting present? Right. So and obviously there's rumors and, you know, claims that she could get redistricted or. You know, she can alienate some of her voters, which is kind of like, well, she did that anyway, didn't she? Um, so I don't know. At the end of the day, it was it, it was poor politics and, and just 
bad policy all the way around. So, um, so I will say, if it, you know, for all the people out there that are thinking, well, this is the thing that needs the criticism. Well, no, now you can draw a straight line and basically say now it's just all it's all performative. That's my political hot take for now. Um, it certainly was hot. <laughs> Not lukewarm in the slightest. <laughs> <sighs> well, uh, great. I mean, I mean, shit, as long as we uh, as long as we come to a concise understanding that that people in either New York or Los Angeles, politically speaking, are just empty suits with empty golf bags. I guess we can uh, I guess we can move on from that. Yeah. Well, and, and even to that very point, very quickly, I will say, you know, today uh, there could have been a vote by the L.A. City Council with regards to um, having all indoor businesses require proof of vaccination for people going in. And I know that one of the more conservative members of the city council who is running for mayor, who I believe is a former police officer, former member of the LAPD, he withheld his vote. Okay. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see when that news comes around. I, you know, I kind of look at it at this point, like, yeah, I'm fine with showing proof of vaccination. I don't really care. I feel like it's something that you'd have to show anyway regarding, like, getting on a plane, mm -hmm. you know, and being in sort of these claustrophobic areas where it would make sense for the the, the virus to spread perhaps a lot easily as opposed to being, like, at a park. Yeah. You know, I'm willing to bet that you know, assuming that there is a quote unquote vaccine and by vaccine, I mean something that, you know, that you would take as a child to prevent it from ever getting it, you know, i.e. something like polio or chickenpox or something. That's when I think us as a society can collectively be like, oh, hey, yeah, let's let's rip up our vaccine cards, you know. (laughs) Well, and I think, too, the, the backlash to that whole notion of, you know, you need to show your your vaccine card before you go in anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry. Do all these people not show their IDs when they get an alcoholic beverage? You know, like, do they yeah. throw a big stink and, and they're like, scam, scam. And then they like go on strike, you know, <laughs> like, right. Is it like I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't think it's as how do I put this? Maybe I'm just willing to give people's rash opinions the benefit of the doubt because I can understand sort of the annoyance at having to carry one more document with you. Mm-hmm. And considering it's just inconvenient enough that it doesn't fit in a wallet. Yeah, I was gonna mention that. You know, like, <laughs> kind of understand that it's not so much like a license so much as it is a uh, like a like an insurance card yeah you know like it's something that you wouldn't think to carry on your person ever and the mm-hmm. fact that you have to it's more of an annoyance and it, and if we're arguing strictly strictly off that point i'm like look dude it's hard enough keeping track of your phone wallet and keys you know I, i've lost i've lost them several times <laughs> 
the other the other kind of gross frustration when it comes to the vaccine cards is the fact that you know outside of the fact that there was no sense of preparedness with regards to actually fitting them in a wallet they also look damn near identical to vaccine cards from like 50 60 years ago right um which you know I see that, and and I I only I know this from a uh, there was some some story I was reading about recently about somebody that found a vaccine card at like I think it might have been like a SWAT meet like like mm-hmm. somebody had like a bunch of old paperwork lying around and I guess it was for sale I don't know um, that's interesting and there was a vaccine card in there and I'm I'm blanking on what the what the ailment was that the person got a vaccine for but card look damn near close to what we've had getting our covid vaccines and it's just like yeah this tells me that we weren't really uh paying attention (laughs) or (laughs) at the very least like you know and and obviously like we talked about it before and and we've heard it before about you know the united states would was never ever going to be prepared for a pandemic yeah, it doesn't fit in the wallet. I I find that to be kind of frustrating, but again, I It seems like such a nuanced reason too where it's like really you're going to be arguing about this. Yeah. So, but hey, it's whatever, you know. Um but we do have some good news that I wanted to kind of throw your way just because I and I know we've talked about the show on and off and we've sort of repeated some of the same talking points about it um russell t davies the writer and former showrunner of doctor who from the start of the revival up until i think about five going on six years after Mm -hmm. um he is coming back and he's going to be taking over after this next season and apparently he'll be taking over just in time for the 60th anniversary of the show. Wow. Now, obviously, it's been I know for you, it's been a minute since you've caught up with the show. Yeah, I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit rusty on my Doctor Who lore, uh, I guess, for a bit of background. I started with Eccleston. Yeah, boy. At this at this point in time is still my favorite doctor, both in personality, execution, and otherwise show direction. Uh, do I feel bad that he got the shaft? Absolutely, because yeah. uh, his quarrels with the I think it was the show's creator at the time, right? Well, it was with Russell T Davies, yeah. Oh, right, right, okay. Yeah, so I started with Eccleston, and then I decided that I was going to be that kid who watched Doctor Who and decided to go all the way back to Hartnell. Uh, <laughs> I found out that. that it was pretty, pretty unwatchable. And I'm not saying for sake of, you know, plot or dialogue or what have you, but I, there was a reason why the people who watched Doctor Who around me suggested that I start with Eccleston. I can definitely tell that it was more akin to uh, UK humor yeah and 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 in jokes then i probably would have had the time nor or energy to stomach um i get it it's it's sort of similar to how you know the office uk versus the american office 
uh, they're two different shows for two different sets of people. Like, I get it. Yeah. But Eccleston is what I started with, and then I got bored with Tenant, and then I got disgusted by Smith, and then Capaldi, and that was solely because of the fan base at the time, because you would end mm. up having people who thought that they were hot shit because they knew all these these different factoids, and it's like, I just want to watch a TV show. Yeah. And now you ruin this for me. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not one to say that I'm the most important person in the world, but it's like, how do you expect me to be invested in a TV show and have my own opinion about it when a, those opinions are either ruined or spoiled or mm. b, completely sunk into the ground by other, by other nerds who are just like, um, it's pronounced Dalek, Sebastian. <laughs> I, I, I dated this girl in freshman year of high school. Mm. Her friend, because I said Dalek, I, I mispronounced it. Right. And they like flip the shit, and I'm just like, I'm like it's not that serious. <laughs> it's really not. That's that's when you should have turned around and been like, um, excuse me, Hermione, it's Leviosa, yeah, not really. Leviosa. <laughs> just to, just to stick it, just to stick you know, it. <laughs> and that was that was actually the reason why I never I never really showed any interest in Harry Potter after three. Oh wow! Even though okay. Goblet of Fire was was pretty great. Oh but, yeah, that's that's um, my favorite. Yeah, uh, my favorite. It will always be uh, uh, Philosopher's Stone, as it should be <laughs> called. It's the same thing. Um, even or I'll though, put it this way: it's it's my favorite. The fourth one's my favorite book. The third movie, I. I I, I don't know. Third, third I, I movies, still third movie's all right. I would say for me, it's it it goes number one, number two, and then everything else. You can either you can rank them how, however mm. you want. I mean, I, I know I know Half Blood Prince was a, a, a tragedy. I guess compared to the other ones, I mean, like a good movie on its own, but it was a, a horrible movie in comparison to the. the I thought Order I, of Phoenix. I thought Order of Phoenix was boring. The older I get, those last four movies just get too... They blend together. Yeah, and that's because it's the same director and who is also, I should note, the same director that they have for the Fantastic Beasts movies. So everything has this, like, sepia tone slash oversaturation right. slash awkward hipstery teenageriness that I just... You know, call me, call me an old fogey, but all the awkward stuff in those last, at least in five, at least in order of the Phoenix and half blood Prince, I'm, I'm kind of just over it. Like I loved half blood Prince when I was younger, but the older I get, I'm just like, it's there. Yeah. You know, and, I mean, it's important with regards to like the whole Voldemort story and, and what happens to Dumbledore. I think um, the charm, I, I will say that the mm -hmm. charm of, I think one and two has never really, left it and it's not because yeah. of the fact that everyone is young you know yeah. start, starting their career but it's the fact that it's like you come to sort of appreciate the little things and the twists and turns and like how it how it shapes the world around it and it's like you know i'm not trying to make this sound like a harry be a harry potter episode but mm. it's one of those things where i've gotten to countless like theories and like actual what's the word like i've i've learned 
more about literary devices reading Harry Potter than mm. I think I have from any other book, excluding okay. satire, because Harry Potter isn't satire, it's fiction. Yeah. And I, I want to get your opinion on this because I've had, mm-hmm. I've had countless arguments with people <clears throat> regarding Sorcerer's Stone, which is, like I said, my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, people always seem to think that that movie's just kind of there and it has no bearing on the story. And th- I will say in its in its sort of execution, there's a point to be made there considering you go through the entirety of the book and the movie and you think to yourself, well, that's Sorcerer's Stone, huh? <laughs> <laughs> And, and I and I couldn't wrap my head around it, and I'm just like, wait, now I get it. It's just a fucking MacGuffin, and that's all it is. Oh, like the object itself. The object itself, and really, exec- like in 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 practice of what it is, in sort of the lore of what the Philosopher's Stone is. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a stone that turns metal into gold. That's right, all it is, right. you know. And Voldemort, and, and it also can. You know, make you immortal if you use it no see that's the other stone though no the the resurrection stone the resurrection stone no i I saw that those were two different things right but the difference between the two is that with the sorcerer's stone it can also make you immortal which is why uh nicholas flamel was able to live for so long and pretty much live up until as far as i mean I, i don't know I know, b- believe me, my Harry Potter knowledge damn near rivals my Star Wars knowledge. It's it's kind of embarrassing, but like Fl- Flamel is still alive by the time uh, the first story ends. Um, the, Re- the Resurrection Stone gives off the illusion of bringing somebody back from the dead, but the reality is is that. They're still dead. They're they're essentially a, a ghost in a way, right. like almost like a, a a ghost that can touch and feel, which is why Harry, at least from what I was able to understand from the last book, uses it and he sees his parents, Sirius and Lupin. Um, spoilers for all the Remus Lupin fans out there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like he gets to see them one last time. But they're not alive. They're, I mean, he like right. obviously he knows they're dead. And Lupin, hell, Lupin knows he's dead. Like that's the other thing is that there's this melancholy where it's like, no, I know I'm dead, but I'm back. But it's one of those things where it's not utilized in in its introduction. It's indicated in being destroyed. Voldemort oh, sor- never Sorcerer's gets Stone. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Voldemort never gets it. Harry Harry gets it, and it manages to do nothing in the final battle, essentially. Yeah. If you can call that a final battle, I I don't know. I mean, it's Quarrel being Voldemort was probably one of the biggest twists as a as a thirteen year old. I was like, whoa! Yeah. Oh no, I the whole time. I thought that was trust me to this day. And and the Lego and the Lego minifigure, it just it was like whoa, you know. Oh yeah. (laughs) So. It was one of those things that I just racked around so with so many years. I'm just like, okay, the sword of Gryffindor at least came back. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Sick. 
You it know? took a while. It took a while, yeah, yeah. but it's like, you know, oh, the, the, the stone is destroyed. I'm like, okay, so we just spent the entirety of the movie doing what exactly with it? And if you really want to get technical, it did, didn't do mystically what it's supposed what it was supposed to do. It didn't turn anything into gold. It it took it took several movies and the start of a very misguided spin-off series to actually see the effects of the Sorcerer's Stone used on an individual. And, and what I mean by that is, is that the Fantastic Beasts movies, which are, are essentially the Star Wars prequels for the Harry Potter universe, you see Nicholas Flamel in the flesh in the second film. And he looks bad. He Honestly, the makeup is worse than what they put on Palpatine in, in Revenge of the Sith. And all, all you see is just this really old guy, and they don't really explain. And obviously, they're they're going off of the the, the red letter media mantra of "Hey, remember this? Remember this thing you like?" And so it's like you watch it, and you know if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know who Nicholas Flamel is. And of course, at some point in the movie, he has to like open up his safe to get something, and oh look. There's this red ring pop Rock. looking thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and that and nothing is said about it because hey, remember remember berries? You yeah, know. yeah, remember that? And and it's and it's sort of that is what I've what I've got from the entirety of that of that object. It's remember that, you yeah. know? Like I mean, here's the thing. I, it is it is a MacGuffin. It doesn't play that severe of a role in the first and here's the thing i and this is where i you know we've talked about it before with regards to this the new the star wars sequel trilogy about you know planning this shit out and obviously i think jk rowling did have have just about okay maybe not everything planned out but most of the story planned out for the seven books but there is this feeling in the very beginning that she's relying on stuff that is kind of pre-established, at least within the first few books. There's little things she nitpicks, not nitpicks, but that she cherry picks here and there that are in actual mythology, you know, like the Sorcerer's Stone. I'm pretty sure Nicholas Flamel was an actual right. person, by the way. Um, hippogriffs are a real thing in mythology. Obviously, you see a sphinx. In the fourth book, oh, gee, I wonder what that is. Um, I, I wonder where I can see a sphinx. Um, but I I don't know. It, it's kind of, you're, I mean, you, you do make a good point. Like, it doesn't play that much of a role, but it makes me wonder whether or not the whole Horcrux thing was already developed. Because... Voldemort had a Horcrux that he could have used to come back through, i.e. his diary, which, of course, is the whole point of the second story for all the listeners out there that have not right. seen or read Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Um, Chamber of Secrets was, was pretty good, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I think with the Sorcerer's Stone, it's kind of like the story, not the object itself. Like, I think I still give it a lot of credit because at the end of the day— it is meant to be this big 
this start to showing you this brand new world and explaining as much as it can without completely alienating the audience and going into overdrive with the magical creatures and wizard, you know, wizard history. Um, hell, the history of Hogwarts is pretty much not mentioned at all in that first story. Like there's, it's, it's giving you a lot, but giving you a taste of what's to come. And I don't know, to me, the first two movies, there's still a lot of moments where the dialogue is, is a little, I've started paying more attention to it as of, as of late. My parents and my sister love Harry, the Harry Potter films. So I've seen those movies way too many times in quarantine (laughs) more than I've seen the star Wars films. I may add, you know, there's some moments where it's a little janky and you're kind of thinking to yourself, Oh yeah, that's right. That's because these movies were made by an American. (laughs) Um, But uh, (laughs) you know, whereas, you know, like prisoner of Azkaban, there's something more, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, Alfonso Cuaron is, is a director I really like. Um, you know, he did Gravity, Itumama Tambien, Roma. He's done a whole bunch of great movies. He brought a, a, a something unique to the universe that I think the first two movies were needed to stray away from. Otherwise, Prisoner of Azkaban, had it been Chris Columbus directing it, I think would have been exhausting. And I should note, Chris Columbus... Uh, crap. I'm I'm forgetting. He's done other big movies. I the big the big movie of his that I love of his, um, is Mrs. Doubtfire, obviously. <laughs> um, but um, I I could name more, but I'm I'm blanking, and also Mrs. I got to back to Doctor Who. Eccleston left because he wasn't all that thrilled with what season two was going to offer. He he didn't like that the show was going to go in a little bit more of a campy direction. And it was already kind of campy in that first season, but he he just didn't want to go any further with it. And it's weird. He's he's doing audiobooks for the BBC now for Doctor Who. As you know, mm-hmm. coming back as the ninth doctor and having adventures and whatnot. But he still doesn't feel fine about coming back for the 60th. Yeah, he I mean, he didn't even come back for the 50th, did he? They no, had, he, they had to they had to put some stand in. Well, they they had they uh shoot they they basically did two things. One, he said he wasn't going to come back. So, in incorporating him into the story with all the other doctors, they just took footage from one of his episodes that was used in an episode of his. So it it kind of feels a little weird that he repeats himself at another point in his timeline. Um. But also because he did, he decided not to come back. That was when Stephen Moffat decided to bring in John Hurt to play the War Doctor. You know, this doctor that, right, basically the one that ended the Time War that all the other doctors are trying to forget. And uh, and also because Moffat had this idea that the doctor that they used for the Fox TV movie, which is canon, uh, the idea was oh. He he couldn't destroy Gallifrey and wipe out the Daleks. That wasn't his personality, which, you know, OK, fair, I guess. Cool. Um, but not only that, uh, Capaldi has made it sound like he's not all too keen about coming back for the 60th. Which surprised me a little bit, but at the same time, I mean, let's face it. 
three, you know, typically when it comes to multi-doctor specials, and I'll, I'll just make this point brief because multi-doctor specials are something I could talk about forever. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, let me tell you, I, I was building up for the 50th. I went back and watched some of the other anniversary specials and they were, the first one was pretty great, even though the first doctor was barely in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that point, they only had three doctors. So there you go. Um, right. And then the next one, they had five doctors and they technically only still had three because the uh, William Hartnell had already passed away. So they right. had somebody else to play the first doctor and Tom Baker wouldn't come back to play the fourth. So for the 50th. No, for the, uh, oh God. I was going to well, say he oh, came for back the, for the 50th. Yeah, he came back for the 50th. He didn't come back for the uh, the 20th anniversary special. Mm. And he had already left the show by that point. He, right, uh, he, was, he was done. Yeah. Oh God, what was the actor's name? I, I don't, it's not Pete Davison. That's the schmuck nope. from Saturday Night Live. No, um, it's um uh the second doctor, right? No, the the fifth doctor, he was Oh, uh okay. Uh that was something Davidson though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh, let me see, hold on. I'm Yeah, I'm looking it up not. too cuz it's going to drive me nuts for the rest of the show. <laughs> uh, uh Peter Davidson. Peter. Okay. Was, All right, you were right. Close enough. Sixth um, doctor, that was uh that was Colin Baker. Yes, yeah. But by that point, Peter Davison was the doctor, so they finagled it and, and said, yeah, it's the five doctors, but, you know, eh, it's really four. And then for the 25th anniversary, they really didn't do much other than they got uh, the second doctor back. I, I honestly, like, I, if if the idea is it's going to be David Tennant, Matt Smith, and Jodie Whittaker, that doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I think I, I think they're great fine whatever like i because i i started with eccleston i knew that season six at that point in time this was oh my god really gonna date myself this uh, date myself i'm gonna date everybody this was a decade ago um (laughs) i was in high school uh and uh yeah like I, i i was like yeah i'm gonna watch the show why not giddy up right and you know the the Tenant era was pretty good. I mean, I, I, he's. I have the tenant era. The tenant era was definitely that, and the Smith era were definitely the eras where you would see girls at my high school just fawning. Over yes. Them. And I think Same. it's. I think it's the fact where it's just like, oh, haha, they're British. They're they're attractive. I've seen entire Tumblr blogs dedicated to them. You oh, know. Yeah. And it's like you take those two out of the equation. And you're left with a flurry of doctors with much more appealing outfits and personalities. And I think yeah. just generally 60s to 80s just does it better in regards to funny, outlandish sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand why there would be a disconnect, because it's like, like I said, it it's it doesn't skew the line. But there's a gray area between, oh, haha, British humor being watched by an American and just, yeah, this isn't funny in, in this generation. You know what I mean? Like, this is some, the, the, you got to have a high IQ. You got to watch a lot of Rick and Morty to understand this. You got to have a high <laughs> IQ. So. Well, and, and plus, I think with 
Peter Davison's doctor aside, most of the other classic doctors were supposed to be not only emblematic of the first in terms of being this kind of older figure of authority and expertise and in a lot of ways kind of a, a almost like a Miss Frizzle type like I'm going to take you to all of these wonderful places and basically be your teacher you know mm-hmm. and and I, I leave Pete, uh, Peter Davison out of it simply because he was 30 when he got the role he was at that time the youngest actor to get the role of the doctor and uh, you know and of course later Matt Smith kind of took over as the youngest doctor. He was, he was, oh my God, just about my age when, when he got the role. And, uh, you know, I think too, it's, you know, they, they realized that they probably wanted to get the show back to being a little bit closer to the classic series and let the doctor be a little bit more loose and, colorful and and not in a dress sense but just in a character sense and i get that i mean i think if eccleston had done another season god knows where the show would have gone thematically Mm -hmm. um because you know they did want to have a darker doctor in the 80s with colin baker as the sixth doctor like he wanted to be the black leather uh dark you know, I'm I'm going to kill you, but not kind of doctor, which they later teased that with Capaldi's and they never really followed through with it. They just kind of, you know, let him be stern, but goofy. Um, and I don't know, it, it, it seems to me like. While there's an aspect to Russell T Davies coming back that gives me the impression that they're worried about the show getting canned. Because obviously with Capaldi's era, it, it started off great and then it kind of it all just kind of became very vanilla. Um, it ended on a high note. And especially it, it, it went even further with casting the first female doctor who, again, I like her. I think she's phenomenal. I think she brings a lot of life to the show that it really hasn't had even with okay. uh, Smith and Tennant. Like. It's it's in a lot of ways it's reminiscent of some of the classic doctors that were a little bit more pacifist, I guess you could say, and less sexually charged, because let's face (laughs) it, with with Tennant and Smith, the idea was, you know, let's have the doctor be this 900 year old guy who knows everything and he's kind of like your your favorite teacher but you also want to bang him and it's yeah, kind of, and, which, and, and and I'm sure Billy Piper being there didn't didn't help matters much. Right. And and you know. to be fair like starting with the 8th doctor that started the whole trend of the companion and the doctor smooching. Um right. snogging if you will. Uh the lat, like her first season was good. It 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 went places, let me tell you, and I don't just mean time and space. Uh one of the episodes in that season about Rosa Parks, I would argue, might be one of the best episodes they've done in the revival period. But everything else has kind of been like, eh. You know, they brought the master back and then they completely shat on, like, the history of the show. Um, Rise of Skywalker style. So, <laughs> you know, I'm... They had more of a sense of humor with it. 
What do you mean, like the the like they retcon they, they, or? Well, they sort of they knew that what they were doing was sort of like a parody. Oh no, it, it was more like I'll put it this way: the show, the whimsy of the Moffat era is gone. The Stephen Moffat run, like the the stuff that I liked of with season five, because season Tenet's my favorite, but Matt Smith's first season is my favorite season of the show just because there is this whimsical element that is kind of refreshing it's very british um but it also really works with the dynamic of amy and the doctor and that you know that whimsy stayed for a while it it kind of went away when matt smith's tenure ended and it it was still kind of there in the Capaldi era, it just never really came from the doctor. Um, the Whitaker run has had no whimsy whatsoever outside of her kind of dorkiness, which again, it's quaint and I like it, but there's a lot of it that plays very serious, especially coming from the companions who play everything seriously. And it's kind of, it takes away a little bit of the magic of the show, like the shock and awe of, traveling through time and space it's not there anymore and the retcon that they have with the last season which i, I won't give it away just because it, it's so bad and i don't even like that i don't even like thinking about it. it it was enough for me to think yeah okay i i'm i'm not feeling bad about the fact that i've kind of distanced myself a little bit from doctor who like i'll watch new episodes but ever since Matt Smith regenerated my my fandom for the show has sharply declined um right. and you know at the end of the day the other thing too is with the 60th Jody Whitaker won't be the doctor anymore so really she'll be leaving she'll be leaving the show she's got one more season left and it's going to be a short ass season partially I think thanks to COVID and I think also because there's been a lot of issues with the current showrunner, Chris Chibnall, who he's previously written for the show uh, since the show came back. And there's obviously also been a lot of criticism lobbied at Jodie Whittaker, not only because of her character and because of just sort of the tone that the show has taken, but also there's been a lot of flagrant, horrible sexism thrown towards her that is obviously not deserved. Um and it's also kind of a joke because it's like we know time lords can change gender when they regenerate, so why is right. this a problem? You know, like I to me, right, right, right. I I look at it like they only had two options after Peter Capaldi: either the Doctor becomes a woman, or for crying out loud, get a ginger. Like <laughs> you know, we've had two doctors complain about not being ginger. Right. And there are two doctors that we love, by the way. So, or at least the fandom loves to death. So, you know, uh, put up or shut up. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like that's kind of where I'm thinking. Okay, maybe Russell T Davies will bring that back. Who knows? But um, I don't know. The other thing too is like what it what it means for the show going forward because it's been so real, and the tone has been lacking of camp and whimsy like i don't know could do you think after all these years and obviously there's a gap obviously between where you left off and where the show could pick up with russell t davies again but like 
do you see the show potentially going in the same direction as it was back in the tenant era or i'd like i'd like it to happen that way mm-hmm. um mainly just because i think for sake of simplicity what made doctor who in yeah. 2005 with eccleston so good was the fact that they were able to i think make their lack of characters worthwhile you know you had yeah. eccleston you had piper and then you had we well, had the mickey mickey and you had uh jack well you also had jackie tyler rose's mom uh oh right right that's right but you also had jack too who you know i i can't complain mm-hmm. captain jack harkness <laughs> right no it's um it was just sort of those characters that that did it for me and and maybe it was just different writing in 2005 um, Yeah. you know nowadays when i when i watch any kind of tv show for me it has to be a certain length mm-hmm. and i feel like when it came like how long are doctor who episodes nowadays usually about like like with commercials they're, they're about like, like an hour minutes? oh like an hour okay yeah, so they're like yeah. 45 minutes about yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I'll sit down one of these days and marathon it. Um, part of me watching a TV show also is of the impression that that TV show is finished, i.e. Right. I have no expectations and having to keep up with what everyone's watching at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of my my thing, too, where it's just, hey, how about... How about we uh how about we not have another doctor for a while, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> you know, cuz it's very easy to catch up to the point where it's like, okay, you want to start with Hartnell? Oh, feel free, you know, it's going to be <laughs> quite it's going to be quite a marathon before you see anything in color before Pertwee hits the stage. You know, it's it's one of those shows where I wish it would it, I wish it would end. And right. Because it deals with different times in history and different sci-fi elements, you know, you look at something like Star Trek, for example, and you think, mm-hmm. well, that ended. Well, it was canceled. At least the original series was. <laughs> right. No, what, but what I'm saying is that there's you a also Star had the movies, and then you right. got Spock coming back in Next Generation and in the Abrams films, so... Right. So, but it kind but of ended, a, but it took 50 years. Right, but there's, but there's an end point if you're willing to take all that time to you know really be a dedicated trekkie and be like okay well that was a good 50 years spent watching a tv show that i really liked i don't know you know whether or not that that was a waste that's up to you Mm -hmm. but i remember vividly watching 50th anniversary Mm -hmm. and just being so fascinated with like i was the only one out of my friend group who watched doctor who that gave a shit of anyone before nine oh same me you too. know, so it yeah. was just like, oh, like seeing them all together was just the biggest. Oh, yeah. The biggest, the coolest thing ever. And it's like when Capaldi, when Capaldi's eyes flashed on the screen, oh, I had a stroke. Me too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I guess to answer your question, do I wish it was more whimsical? Uh, no, because <laughs> I don't want because I don't want a annoying people fan fanboying, fangirling over what's essentially a show because that's all it is is a show yeah and maybe because it was ruined for me in that regard you know maybe i'm just a bit more jaded 
there's there's certain things that make a show run and it's definitely the audience that 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 keeps it alive to some mm-hmm. degree you know like you could appreciate a show a show for what it's worth but it's like if you have if you have dumbasses sidelining it being like oh here's why it's good it's because of pop culture and and they're hot you know <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. all right oh, feel free to write your thesis paper on that <laughs> Well, and to that point, like, I think it was very mm-hmm. nuanced reasons as to why people liked this show, at least growing up for me. And it was yeah. very hard to disconnect that from sort of the deep dives that I attempted to do looking back to the 60s era. Right. You know, because when I got into Doctor Who with Eccleston, it was like, oh, you're you're watching Doctor Who. Oh, I, I you should wait till you get to Tenant. And ironically, that's when I stopped. Yeah. At least stop watching it religiously because I'm like, I get the memes. I get the show. It's all but been spoiled. And I don't think Matt Smith's that good looking. <laughs> now you're sounding like me circa 2010. <laughs> 2011, excuse me. <laughs> you know, I remember when I was in 10th grade, I dressed up as David Tennant for Halloween. And I, I really went all out with this with this costume. I got a three piece blue suit with the tan oh trench God. coat and the, and the 3d glasses and the sonic screwdriver and the red converse mm. and I made, I made every 15 year old girl foam at the mouth within a 15 mile radius <laughs> it was awesome okay yeah it was awesome and i god i wish i still had that cost those pictures of that costume but um I know yeah, I like, still have pictures of mine in, in the Tenant costume and the Eccleston costume. <laughs> oh, no, the Eccleston costume was the reason why I, I took to wearing a leather jacket. Oh, uh, cool. OK. Yeah, that, that was my that was my reason. OK, I found a I found one that was big enough that it it sat on me perfectly the same way his did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean. I think, too, you know, because when it comes to, like, the complexities of the show, i.e. the writing, the Moffat slash Matt Smith era in specific, the, the Matt Smith period of Stephen Moffat's run as showrunner, that was where it got at its most convoluted and also its most nostalgic, where... Every, like, third line of dialogue was referencing an episode from, like, 1969 or, you know, something from the Tenant era that everybody still remembers. Yes, and so so that was actually very interesting that I saw, too, like, with Capaldi especially. I think there was that one episode where Mm -hmm. you get to see in detail how the first Doctor regenerates. Do you remember that episode? I think, I think that, that was, called, was uh what was that? Uh I think I know was that you like, mean uh Capaldi's I, final episode? I don't know if it was Capaldi's final episode. Well, cuz his last episode and this goes back to what I was saying about multi-doctor specials. They yeah, basically made his his last those. episode a multi-doctor special where he gets to meet the first doctor. Um and you do, you basically do get to see the first doctor regenerate. And yeah, it, uh, twice upon a time. There yep, we go. That's the one. That was it. That was the Christmas mm-hmm. special. And that one was okay. I, I mean, 
in the tradition of Christmas specials, it's forgettable. But you know what? I was fine with him and the first doctor seeing each other. Um. Anyway, go on. Sorry. No, it was just it it was it was interesting. I mean, it was uh, mm-hmm. it's a nice callback, definitely. And for someone who who nerds the fuck out whenever I hear the woo woo, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. And then they see the transition. It's just like, yeah, that's cool. Well, I think but, the the big kicker with Davies coming back that I think. Well, there, there's two big kickers with it. One, it's a lot like when he first left the show, and it's also a lot like when Chris Chibnall, or actually, no, Chris Chibnall is still showrunner. Um, when Moffat left the show, like, not only are you going to get a new doctor, you're going to get a whole new everything. Like, the obviously, we're probably going to get a new TARDIS. Uh, we're getting a new doctor. We're probably going to get a whole new crew of people working on the show as well. And the quality is probably going to be different to the cinematography. So in that regard, that's part, that's one of the genius aspects of the show that I still continue to respect is that at some point a showrunner finally steps down and their doctor decides to also or their their latest doctor decides to go away go away I'm trying to be delicate here their la- latest doctor decides they're going to step down as well and you know pass the screwdriver on to somebody else and i think that's part of the refreshing element of the show is that like with the Matt Smith run or at least the beginning you can start at season five and arguably you don't even really need the first four seasons of the revived run, you know, which mm-hmm. that's not me saying people don't need to watch the Eccleston and Tenet eras. I'm going to recommend that until the day I die, but it's a, it's a good enough starting off point where let's face it, kids of a certain age that were seeing commercials for season five were probably thinking oh what's this show doctor who what, ooh, what's this about you know and you could go in with fresh eyes right. with uh jody whittaker coming to the show it was kind of the same way um the difference obviously is that chibnall only has one doctor under his belt whereas his predecessors had two soon russell t davies is going to get a third uh moffat almost had three doctors because David Tennant almost stayed another season, uh-huh. but decided, you know what, I'm just going to I'm just going to end it now. And um, which is fine. I mean, you know, what? again, right. I, you know. I love season five as it is. I wouldn't change a thing about it. That's not true, but uh, um, <laughs> I'd change many. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it, it gives the show a new start. And I think whether or not it's going to feel that much similar to those first four seasons we have yet to see but i think it the big the big draw this and my my second big point with davies coming back is that it was probably the best doctor who news that you could possibly get to unite the fans which you know some might call it laziness but at the end of the day if it ain't broke don't fix it and in this case, if it's broke, fix it. 
And I think, you know, bringing a, an old face and having him come back to shake things up his way. I don't know. At the end of the day, he could come back and his first season could be complete garbage. I doubt it. I hope not. I wish the best. I will be watching it just because it'll be Russell T. Davies and a brand new doctor. Sign me up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll finally get to see him do a anniversary special, which we, we've only seen that once right. in this current iteration of Doctor Who. So with Stephen Moffat, and of course he made it as complicated and weird as he could, but it all paid off in the end. So at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I guess it's safe to say we're both excited and curious and cautiously optimistic. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's the kind of good news that I just think if you're a Doctor Who fan of any of any generation and wherever you left off, it's it's good news. The David Tennant era aside, I know for you, but like the Russell T Davies run overall is pretty well regarded. And so whereas with Moffat, it was like a roller coaster. And I can easily say that for me, it was a love hate relationship with that man, especially with season six. Oh, boy. That's the most that's the most hot I ever got from a TV show where I was like, bruh, what are you doing? And then he paid off and I was like, you're good. You're good. Um, Whereas with Davies, it's just a fun time. So, right. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, hey. Who knows? So uh, to to borrow a line from the 50th from Tom Baker, but um, it's good news to look forward to. And. It's it's going to be a homecoming, the likes of which we probably haven't seen for a while. So fingers crossed. Oh, fingers crossed indeed, man. Mm-hmm. Well, there's only so much uh, British entertainment that I can stomach. So unless you have any final words. Alonzi, um, so come on. American <laughs> <laughs> accent. Alonzi, Alonzo. Oh, my God. Ah, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urberic, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. Once again, I am Ryan Mancini, and my co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs> <laughs>